Welcome to The Hut Near The Bog, the podcast where a life and business coach and a philosopher discuss various aspects of human existence by drawing on the wisdom of Ireland as well as their own expertise and life experiences. So the book has a series of interludes where I kind of pick up on different aspects of the city. So you almost might imagine that some parts of the novel are like close-ups of the family and then suddenly you've got this big kind of drone shot or this skyward shot where you look at the, the city's parks or its water or its roads or, you know, or its sky. And, um, and I, th- I think that's because I guess landscape is a, what you might call a silent parent. Um, you know, we have our parents and we're influenced by them, we're influenced by our grandparents, and quite often we see that influence. But if you live in maybe in one place for your whole life, you, you, it's very hard to see how where you are is actually influencing you. And so those interludes are attempts to kind of contextualise the Nikulians within their own environment, even though they're not aware of maybe how the road system in, in Southampton or, you know, um, is, is, might be influencing them. It does have an impact on where you feel you are, how you get to a certain place. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think of landscape as a kind of silent parent. And when we engage with it, um, I think that, that um, we allow that, aspect of ourselves to speak. Craig Jordan Baker is a senior lecturer in creative writing at the University of Brighton. He has published fiction in New Writing, Text, Firefly Magazine, Potluck and in the Epoche Press e-zine. In this, our final episode of Season 1, Sheila sits down with Craig to discuss his recently published book, The Nikulians. Sheila and Craig explore several key themes related to the book, including the literacy of landscape, the book's representation of grief and adversity, and how it is a dog can be more discerning than its owners. In the final part, Craig shares the family wisdom we can learn from reading The Nikulians. So, Craig, the first thing I'd like to say to you today is that you're so welcome on to the podcast, The Hut Near the Bog. We're so pleased to have you. And having read your book, I'm very excited to listen and to get clarification on some pieces of it. Um, Being an an 100% Irish, I got my DNA done recently. (laughs) And being 100% Irish, I can certainly empathize with quite a bit of what's in the book and and the secrets that prevailed in Ireland Mm. in a lot of families. So it 
it's it's great to have the opportunity to talk to you. So you. we'll get right down to it, Greg. And I'd love to start by asking you the question. Tell me a little bit about yourself, your background and your childhood memories, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. So, um, well, I guess there's a I've got kind of quite a mixed background. Um, so currently I'm, I'm a writer and, um, I'm an academic. Uh, I teach, um, creative writing and English literature at the University of Brighton, uh, and I live in Brighton. Um, but I'm from, uh, a working class background. I come from a council estate, um, in Southampton. Um, and, uh, I had a fairly, you know, uh, uh, sort of, uh, difficult upbringing in some in some respects um and i took a very odd path um in getting involved in literature and um and ultimately coming to do a phd in philosophy at the university of sussex um and that's something that people from my background uh don't tend to do so i was always seen as a a slight oddity in the family um uh, and my family are, you know, are from an English and Irish uh, sort of background. I'm a dual citizen, um, and so um, I've I've often been interested in. Um, well, I've been interested and in, had a relationship with Ireland for you know for from a very uh, young age, and um, it's something that I think uh, affects the book, you know, in in certain respects. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting because I could almost hear the Irish psychic and pick mm. it up quite a bit. The interesting thing is that my great grandmother was a baker from North Cork. Right. So I'm just I'm just wondering even if we come from some what the same line, who knows? Uh, yeah, 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 maybe, maybe. The it's the Jordan um sort of part the, the, of of my family that's the Irish part, but um uh, I think that the baker's more more the English side, but, but uh, yeah, I don't know, it could be that there's a a distant relation there, definitely. Yes, absolutely. So what inspired you to write this novel, The Net Collins? So, um, well, there's, I suppose as a writer, there's never kind of one thing that, um, that inspires, or at least for me, it's never one thing that inspires me. I think it's a series, a series of things. Um, and I would say that the kind of, the novel germinated and it germinated as I was writing it. Um, something for me personally was, uh, this novel was written, significantly written, um, during a time when my mother was dying of cancer. Um, my mother died in, um, 2019, uh, from a, a pretty, pretty nasty form of cancer. And, um, when she was diagnosed, uh, with, uh, her, her, um, you know, uh, a sort of life-threatening cancer, I realized that my last parent was passing passing from this world or dying to put it in a more prosaic way um and i started to ask myself um the question of what it means to be um in a family what it means to be a member of a family and um and i asked this question generally that i think everyone can relate to that we're all part of a family to some degree or another and also i asked myself well what did it mean to be in my family and so that was something that really kind of um, gave me a lot of uh, time or a lot of uh, motivation to think about because of what was happening to my mother. Um, and then I, I was also interested in looking back at my own childhood and the city I was brought up in. So that's Southampton. And I don't live in Southampton. And I, I probably, like many people, um, you try and escape sometimes where you're from and you run away to different, more exciting places. And I think after time had passed, I wanted to take another look at my city um, 
and and come to understand how it had influenced um me uh, you know how and also how my class background had um had influenced me as well so it was it was a series of things it was about the city it was about my own my own family situation um and i think it was a partly at least an attempt to um to answer for myself uh, a question about what is it to be a member of a family yeah, and I very much got that in the book, Craig, and it actually forced me to think about us as a family, uh, with all our idiosyncrasies, etc. Right. because I believe that, you know, every family is so unique. It's almost like our DNA, you know, mm. so I found it uh, very inspirational. And I also I loved your use of language and and even even at times there you almost could have been in that kitchen like the way you describe things yeah. it was just fascinating to me so i think i think that it's a great um it was great to be so inspired and it's amazing how a death can or the, the lead up to a death mm. when somebody is terminally ill how it makes you almost go back and rethink who you are as a person yeah. and what made you what you are isn't that to some extent uh, how we how we get to know ourselves better craig i think you're absolutely right sheila um that's i think that's beautifully put actually um i i think unless we can come to some kind of terms with um those with the influences that have made us who we are both sort of positive and negative i i think we we can we can miss out and um not see ourselves in in a kind of in the light that perhaps we should or, or in a light which can allow us to actually acknowledge and accept ourselves and also maybe you know also change us if there's something about ourselves that we we don't feel comfortable with or it's not quite right sometimes by acknowledging and looking at um the relationships of the past um you know the experiences we've had and and reflecting on them we can i think come to get a better perspective um and a perspective on let's call it inheritance um and i don't mean that financially although i guess that affects people i mean the kind of uh the genetic inheritance but also the social inheritance of previous generations and that's one of the reasons why this novel focuses on three generations of the same family yeah, I, I think that's amazing. And I always remember my mother telling me about her father-in-law, who was obviously my grandfather. When he was dying, he said to my mother, who will I leave my hands to? It wasn't who will I leave my money to, but who will I leave my hands to? Because he was such a hard worker. And um, they often talked about how he'd be down in the fields at 6.30 in the morning plowing with horses. And he had really big hands. And I'd never have noticed that in uh, the photos until my mother said this. So I think what you have done and what you have explored through three generations is absolutely fascinating for me. Great. So I listened to one of your YouTube clips because I wanted to hear your voice. I'm ah. particularly interested in voices. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw the or I heard the one on Thunder the Dog, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. And I, I just said, God, Craig is also a dramatist in the sense <laughs> that you you really got everything that was to be got out of that chapter, in my yeah. opinion. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I thought if we got you maybe to read a passage from your book, it might give us a little bit more insight for the listeners, if that's okay with you, Craig. 
That's brilliant. I'm really happy to. Um, I thought that as the, as um, your listeners might not be familiar uh, with the novel itself, I thought I might just um, be quite simple and just read from the start. I think the first chapter um, gives you an introduction to the family, who they are, kind of what they've been through. And I think it's also important for me maybe to say that uh, this isn't a book where you um, get too many surprises. I think from sometimes from the start, you know how things are going to go for the characters. But it's not about what happens to them sometimes. It's just about why something happens. And I think this book is about why those things happen to those people as much as it is about what happens to them, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes perfect sense. Mm. Yes, it does indeed. Grand. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, give, I'll, I'll read a couple of pages then um, uh, from chapter... This is um, chapter one, the death of Patrice Nakulian, 1999. What is about to come involves people who live in a house made of brick. You might feel that to write of people in a house made of brick is a soggy submission to the everyday. Not so. It will be shown that such a tawdry setting hides qualities that are amusing and even enlightening so I beg your patience. This brick house was a brick house in a southern city and was a brick house on an estate in the east of that city. Three generations of the same family lived there and if such a thing seems unlikely, please remember that this was the 20th century, a time when people lived together in wonderful and uninterrupted harmony. The family was founded by Patrice and Nandad Nakulian who crossed the waters from the other from another island sometime after the Second World War to help rebuild a country they were at best ambivalent towards. Patrice Nakulian concentrated on pregnancy, smoking and crosswords, while Nandad spent his days laying bricks and being racially abused on building sites. That, of course, was until the blacks came along after which time Nandad Nakulian may as well have been Winston Churchill or Queen Victoria. He was considered so much like his English workmates. Patrice and Nandad had four children, Niall, Betty, Shannon and Bernard. Niall died in the general hospital when he was two hours old from a lung defect that stumped the doctors. And in her 16th year, Betty died suddenly from suicide. After this, only Bernard and Shannon were left, but the brick house remained the same brick house in the line of other brick houses. It was not long before Bernard, promising fellow that he was, became a builder's apprentice at the same firm as his father. Bernard soon fell prey to that wonderful sense of belonging that comes from racial abuse and smoking roll-ups. He tormented a Trinidadian guy by the name of Christian Lovejoy to such a degree that one day Christian left a dog shit in Bernard's hard hat. Bernard's shithead Nikulian was quickly renamed amid general mirth, but they all beat Christian terribly anyway and left him in the shell of the new shopping centre. Everyone claimed he must have been drunk and just slipped on a girder. This leaves us with Shannon who, after getting pregnant by the local chip shop owner, decided to retire to the bosom of the family home. The owner of the chip shop, James Radley, already had a wife and two children, so had no intention of acknowledging the newest outpouring of his fecund loins. Patrice was shocked as much by her daughter's stupidity as by the general shame that came from the assumption that her Shannon was a whore, temptress, liar or fantasist. 
One day, Shannon's son Greg was born in the general, and Patrice looked down at her lymphy, damp little thing that had just emerged from her daughter, and she was wistful. Her own long-departed little boy was upon her at that moment, and crossing herself, she swore to protect her grandson, bastard or not. Amid all the family drama that was to follow, Nandad McCoolian had made it his habit to sit in his green battered armchair behind the fortress of his daily paper, occasionally peering over its crenellations to ask for tea or that the radio be switched on. That was until the mid-90s, a time when Nandad became perplexed by the appearance of a third testicle in his ballsack. Initially, he looked upon this addition with vague suspicion, but eventually this suspicion gave way to a stolid and manly pride. You can imagine his embarrassment then, when, after startling pangs of agony and months of malaise, he was told he had only weeks to live. He died five days after the prognosis, as much from awkwardness as the virulence of his cancer. Okay. How's that? That's absolutely brilliant, and I think it gives us a great sense of the family. So why do you think, Craig, that these people were, to, to some extent, so misfortunate? Um, I guess there are a couple of explanations. I think for the most obvious explanation is is to do with um, class. These people are not rich people. They're not. Um, they haven't got the benefits of a great education, or and they haven't really got the benefit of. You might even call it hope. I suppose. Um, we talk a lot about um, you know social mobility and um, and we sometimes talk about glass ceilings you know that we say you know women trying to get into you know big executive jobs um, meet a glass ceiling on their way up but I also think for some people they're not looking up they look they're looking down at the ground beneath them they're looking straight ahead they're not even aspirational in in any particular sense and I think that comes from a hardship in your daily life and, you know, things that you, um, adversities that you suffer. So I think in that, that, that respect, that's, um, that's why they're, um, they're in this situation. Um, it's to do with kind of class and socioeconomic, um, factors, but, but I also think it's to do with, um, something I'm interested in is masculinity. And I think a lot of the characters, the the men in in the uh, in, in the book are in one way or another another hobbled by um, uh, by trying quite desperately to be certain kinds of men and sometimes not quite managing that and kind of failing um, and the women are often left there to pick up the pieces of of the disasters of men who could fail to be um, uh, the men that they want to be and so I think that's also an, uh, another aspect of it. Yeah, that's very insightful, Craig. And to be honest, I got very much that sense from from reading the book that the women were almost the glue in the proceedings. And also, I also felt that, you know, particularly Patrice, they kept their head over water and they accepted their circumstances at face value and persevered even in such adversity. I, I felt that Patrice in particular had to persevere time and time again. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think um, Patrice is um, 
is really the keystone of the family. Um, she is the glue, but she's almost a silent partner, you might sort of say. There's a there's a part of the book where um, Nandad brings home a puppy, um, which is Thunder the dog, and everyone flocks around the puppy. They love the puppy, and they're all giving they're giving lots of attention to their father. And and you know Patrice is in the background there making a stew, thinking God, you know, some men get all the credit and and do none of the work. And there's that kind of sense that sometimes her resentment bubbles up um the you know she's the one really kind of she's the moral and the psychological strength in the family though um though, though she doesn't seem to be recognized um in the family as such yes uh, and it's interesting as well uh, if if you look at the milk woman, how she yeah. almost admired the milk woman because she had literally gone probably to the glass ceiling. Uh, and I also, I got the sense there that she re- there was a part of her so unfulfilled that she would have loved to have done something different. Was that your intention to bring that out? I wonder, or was it just an interpretation of mine? No, I, I think that I think that's absolutely right. Um, but I also think it's kind of this idea about you know looking not looking up but looking down at the ground you know you don't have those expectations so if patrice has got a desire to do something different um uh you know it's not it's not an active aspiration it's just an idle fantasy um i remember at my my grandfather's funeral um uh my uncle um who is uh who's um, a dramatist and a director and so on. Um, he, uh, he was talking about his relationship with his father. And he said that he thought um, Nandad, that my, we're called my grandfather Nandad, um, that he um, that he always wanted to be an actor. And he said this to my uncle, oh, I always wanted to be an actor. But of course, he was a, he was a kind of working class um, Catholic from Northern Ireland. He had no chance of really becoming an actor. And so, um, uh, but that for, for my uncle was a, like a way of um, that, that person from that generation sort of acknowledging that he did have dreams, but he just saw it as kind of, you know, impossible. Yeah, isn't that amazing? And it's interesting. I spoke with a psychiatrist once just in in chat, Mm -hmm. and he was telling me about having expectations for your family, that it's very important that you let them know that you expect great things from them Mm -hmm. in as far as they're capable of of doing those great things. But he told me the Leaving Cert in Ireland is probably, you know what, it's basically did. Yeah. Okay. Well, he said that this girl had a very negative father and a very Mm. positive mother Mm. and that in the leaving search, she fulfilled both of their expectations. She got four A's and four fails. (laughs) So he said, you just need to make sure that, you know, people are allowed to have expectations. Mm. And it's interesting in many ways. I never actually heard it the way you have put it before, that they keep looking down rather Mm. Than aspiring up, mm. you know, and I, I think in in some social classes, unfortunately, they become entrenched in their thinking, and they're not able to move up, and and that's really what mm. you're saying. Yeah, am I, I right? I, yeah, I I think I mean I, I do think that there are um there's absolutely that psychological that attitudinal aspect to to people's um I mean for example myself um you know I always told my mum, uh, you know, when I was growing up, mum, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go and work on a building site. I know that I'm not going to want, I don't want to work in a shop. I'm going to be a bum. And at best I'll be a poetic bum. 
and um and and you know and so there was me and that, that's pretty ambitious i think you know because at least i was thinking about not doing the things that you know you, you the boys that became men in my yes. in my milieu the things that they did i was saying i don't want to do that um but i knew but for me i just thought well the, the other option is is being a bum um and when i was a little, another little story. Um, when I was visiting my mum in the nursing home, as she was, um, as, uh, um, she was in the later stages of her cancer, I would get a taxi from local train station to her, and you struck up a conversation with, uh, with the taxi driver. Um, there was this woman, and she said, "Oh, what do you do?" And I say, "Oh, um, I- I'm an academic." And she said, "Oh, what's that then?" And I explained that it was someone who taught in a university, you know. And um, and yes. she said, "Oh, really? You know what? I just thought that was another term for a bum." Oh, very good. And and so I, it came full circle in a way. <laughs> very good. But it's interesting. What I'm hearing is that you broke the cycle. In other words, up to then, your family obviously had worked in perhaps building on building yeah. sites or whatever, yeah. but that you just felt that there was another world out there and it was almost breaking the cycle. And even to have the ambition to be a bomb and a poetic bomb, yeah. even more swanky, was just amazing. Yeah, um, I, I think my, my mother... Um in the acknowledgements in the book, I actually I do acknowledge my mother, and I, I think I put I put a lot of the uh, a lot of the reason for that down to her. She wasn't an educated um, uh, woman, um, and uh, uh, but she admired education and learning, and she respected it, and um, and she also did this key thing for uh, that I think is such a a wonderful and nurturing thing to do, which is that she read to me when I was a really small child and she got me reciting nursery rhymes and she activated my imagination with um, reading to me at a really young age. And um, that, um, I think, set me on a, 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 while I've had other disadvantages, I think that was a really core advantage for me. And um, there's even a tape somewhere of me at about two, two and a half reciting nursery rhymes with um, with my mother um, and her just taking, you know, kind of joy in the fact that her, you know, offspring was learning something and could be perhaps witty or playful. Um, you, have you, do you know the nursery rhyme, uh, Jack be nimble, Jack be quick? Yes, yeah. yes. Jack, and, and so she got me doing this. She, uh, Jack be nimble, Jack be quick. Jack jumped over the candlestick. And then, this is two and a half now. Then I paused and went, yeah, Andy hurt his willy. And so, because I had this image of Jack jumping over a candle and burning himself in his, Brilliant. in his, in his, uh, in, you know, in his whatnots. And, um, and my mum just burst out laughing and she just gained, you know, and so she gained something from it. But again, in looking back and reflecting, I think that it was that early influence in literature, um, in words that really, that really um, did uh, set me up. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they say that our childhood memories are the essence of our personality. Mm-hmm. And even remembering that back so far. And to be honest, I'd have to acknowledge that your mum did a brilliant job because I think she activated in you a journey that you may never have gone on otherwise. I think you're absolutely, absolutely right. Um, and, and, um, yeah, my, mo- my mother did that. And also I think, uh, because I was, you know, unusual in my, in, you know, in being kind of, you know, um, 
being you might say literary in my um in, in my class in my kind of general society that I was brought up in uh, I also attached myself to literature at a fairly early stage as well I remember going into um the school library and asking to find look for Irish writers and the librarian sort of scuttled off and brought me back um I think it was Heaney and Yeats and I kind of and I started reading you know um and then I read Wilde and O'Casey um and eventually got on to you know my favorites kind of Beck Kit Flan O'Brien and so on and that and just so it continued on that sort of literary influence from my mother um, and the background we have it kind of ended up getting me into literature when I might not have um, done. Okay that's interesting and the other aspect that I'm particularly interested in and I'm going a little bit away from the book even though obviously the landscape Mm. you seem to be fascinated by landscape and also I see you're a forager so (laughs) I just love to hear a little bit about that as well. Yeah so I um I am a forager. Um I like to go around and, and pick odd things and then eat them if at all possible. Um because when I uh, I suppose I was in my early 20s and I I started to meet people that um that when they were in the landscape when they were walking in a woodland or walking across a field they they could see things that I couldn't they had a vocabulary and um and uh, a perception that I didn't have I didn't know what a foxglove was you know I didn't know what a what a red wing was I didn't know what um you know uh you know wild spinach looked like and and it was through um meeting these people that I realized that if you have a new vocabulary for something you can engage with something in such a different and more exciting way and so I got myself um, a book, um, a fairly famous book among foragers called Food for Free. And I started to go out um, uh, up into the South Downs, um, which is just north of Brighton, um, hunting for things that I could identify. And I slowly became fairly competent at, um, at being able to you know, pick myself up a, you know, a half decent meal from the landscape, um, depending on the season. And um, I remember when I was first out uh, for one of my first times foraging and I was picking up a um the, the the berry of the hawthorn which is known as a haw h-a-w and i picked it up and and started to eat it and there was there were two women with um children and they ran over to me going no no you'll die you'll die <laughs> and 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 i said no no don't worry and i showed them my book and like i i think i just about managed to manage to convince them that i wasn't absolutely bonkers um but uh but that also kind of told showed me that People often fear the landscape. They, they, they fear it as not uh, as something which is deeply dangerous and interacting with it is a kind of deeply dangerous thing. And I think that comes from a place of not really understanding it and not really having the vocabulary to engage with it. That's interesting. And while I was brought up on a farm and I now live on a farm and I'm I'm so into my walks and yeah. picking the blackberries oh, and yeah. and making sure that... The blackberries, I believe, sustain me for the whole winter. I, even though I'm quite on the elderly side now, mm-hmm. I'd never think of getting a flu in, in vaccine or whatever, because right. I believe I have enough to sustain me for the winter. And I'm really, really into my landscape and I feel it's almost imprinted on my soul. Yeah. And I remember doing a Patrick Cavanaugh spirituality weekend. Oh, yeah. And um, that's exactly what the lecturer said, that the landscape was imprinted on his soul. And I feel that every time I go out for a walk, I see 
different things and spot. There's never the same sky. And it yep. was interesting that you you brought that very much in your interludes, which I thought yeah. was a very clever way of doing it. But also there were other little details that we got a chance to hear about almost the relationship of the family with their um, with their environment which was interesting. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think Craig? that, thank you for the question, because I think it's something that's really important for me in my life, but also I think in my writing. I, I'm always interested in writing place. Um, so in, in so the book has a series of interludes wh- where I kind of pick up on different aspects of the city. So you almost might imagine that some parts of the novel are like close-ups of the family, and then suddenly you've got this big kind of drone shot or this skyward shot where you look at the the city's parks or its water or its roads or you know or its sky. And um and I th- I think that's because I guess landscape is a what you might call a silent parent. Um, you know, we have our parents and we're influenced by them. We're influenced by our grandparents. And quite often we see that influence. But if you live in maybe in one place for your whole life, you, you it's very hard to see how where you are is actually influencing you. And so those interludes are attempts to kind of contextualize the Nakulians within their own environment, even though they're not aware of maybe how the road system in, in Southampton or, you know, um, is, is might be influencing them. It does have an impact on where you feel you are, how you get to a certain place. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think of landscape as a kind of silent parent. And when we engage with it, um, I think that, that um, we allow that aspect of ourselves to speak. Yeah, that's interesting because as you're speaking, it's coming to me that, look, a parent in many ways teaches us so much and the landscape also teaches us yeah. so much. Isn't that true? Yeah, absolutely. And um, but I think we uh, but maybe we can do a good job at trying to ignore our parents. And I'm sure lots of lots of <laughs> children do ignore their parents. Um, and I, but I think he, to some extent, especially if you're urban, you can you can almost forget you're in a landscape. Um, and it just it just becomes a kind of slightly deadened and uninteresting um, space. I think if you are lucky enough to live um, in a, a place of natural beauty, I think it's pretty hard to ignore. But I, I, I kind of worry that sometimes urban spaces for the people that live in them, um, they they get they get ignored. And um, to give you an example, um, so I'm from Southampton, and uh, I mentioned in in in. Uh, in the book, in the Nakulians, that um, that the city, while it's by the sea, uh, no one ever really feels that they're by the seaside, and there's a, that's a very different thing, you know, because you associate fun and you know entertainment with being by the seaside, and actually no one in the no one in the city really feels that they're by the sea. And um, I've talked to other people uh, from Southampton, and they're and they're like, yeah, and they they really connected with it, saying yes. When I was living in Southampton, I sort of knew that the sea was very close, but I never felt close to it it was never a part of my experience and um i'm really interested in that kind of a thing yeah and that very much came across in the book i could see it's almost like i heard somebody say once uh, you can't root in concrete and you know i'm thinking about all these red brick houses rows after rows and that they're not aware of all the natural landscape that's around them Am I am I right in saying that? Yeah, um, yeah. No, you're absolutely you're absolutely spot on um, there, Sheila. I, I think, um, I, I, and I think sometimes I think for urbanites, or certainly for me, um, I spent, um, you know, uh, because I wasn't enamoured with my. Uh, 
place um, of where I was living. It was very hard to dream in that place. Or, you know, so I, I became involved with imaginary spaces. And again, this probably links to my you know, early engagements with literature. And I, and I um, started to kind of, you know, I would read fantasy, um, but also I would just get out atlases and I would look for things like tiny islands. And I would kind of just go on a little imaginary journeys um, to these islands. And, and also for me, um, especially, um, uh, you know, Ireland itself was a kind of an imaginary landscape. And this was a place that I kind of connected to, uh, you know, and it wasn't a real place, but it was a place that I connected to through that family connection, especially talking to my grandfather. That's brilliant. That's absolutely fabulous. And we might just get on then yeah. to the secrets uh, of the family history mm. and how they may have shackled the family and did it cause them to make the same mistakes over and over again? So, um, yeah, I mentioned the idea of inheritance and uh, inheritance isn't just, you know, genetic or, you know, financial inheritance is about, um, ways of ways of conducting yourself ways of talking and also i think about things that you might not talk about in a family you know sometimes families are very good at, uh, at silently saying that you can't talk about you know this subject or you can't talk about that subject and sometimes that's around um around secrets um so in the novel uh both um patrice and shannon her daughter um suffer um i suppose you might call it mildly sexual exploitation um uh, Patrice in the 1950s and uh, Shannon in the 1980s, um, but they, um, but you know, Shannon has no knowledge of her of her mother's um, experience because um, it's it's a secret, it's taboo, it's a source of great pain and great shame, um, and and perhaps as a, perhaps as a result, um, you know, Pat- Patrice not talking about that, uh, maybe uh, history is more likely to repeat itself when we don't share the stories of our own experience with um, those uh, with those that are around us. I think. Yeah, I, absolutely. And again, I I was very aware of that. And they both had a similar experience resulting in pregnancy, and the fact that Patrice had never allowed that secret to be unveiled, perhaps um, caused it to happen again or didn't allow her daughter to be aware of maybe the consequences of such a thing happening. Am I right? Or yeah. Am I, no, no, yeah. absolutely. I think that's, I think that's right. And of course we say that, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't blame Patrice. You know, Patrice, I think is a, is a, a stout, is my, is my hero of the book. If anyone is, I think, but, um, yes. but, but she, um, it's almost like if families don't talk about something and don't give their, don't give the people around them the, the stories. And I, I kind of, I mean that we, I think we survive off narrative resources. Um, mm-hmm. One reason why working class kids don't go to university is because they brought up in households where no one has a story about university they don't have didn't have the expectation they don't know what it's like that's one of i think the main reasons why a lot of working class kids don't end up going to university and i think that's another example of kind of you know um this inheritance that i'm talking about and because patrice can't and maybe can't and won't talk about her own traumatic past because it would involve um touching on things that she herself can't hasn't quite processed um, so it does end up causing, I think, uh, a situation where Shannon is not armed with a, a story about the way the world can be. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's it. And there was a bit of submissiveness I felt in Patrice as well. It will happen as God intended. 
Yeah. Am I getting that character right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Patrice has her, her slogan, you might call it. And so, and I think a lot of the characters have um, have their slogans, which are nearly always in some to some extent defensive. Um, Patrice says it will happen as God intended. And, you know, Nandad uh, says sounds about right. And he uses this in almost all contexts when he doesn't want to talk about something. He just says sounds about right to kind of get away from it. But um, I think the idea of it will happen as God intended is in a one sense in- incredibly reflects a kind of ignorance, but also a kind of strength. Um, it's in one sense, she's just having, uh, I guess, and maybe she's a woman of her generation, an Irish woman of her, of her generation in having a, a stal- stalwart and unshakable faith in um in uh in her in in your spirituality and and, and in, in her god um but also in another way it's accepting that that things will happen no matter what you do and you know no matter how you act um i think there's a i think one of my favorite passages in the bible is that um uh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust um i don't know if you uh, if you know that one um uh, sheila I don't know that one, but I, I'd be interested in hearing maybe a few more lines of it. Yeah. yeah um. Uh, I. Um. So I, I. I haven't got it right in front of me, but um. But it's from one of the one of the gospels, and and it and it says um. Uh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, um. Meaning that you can't um. Just because you feel yourself to be virtuous or or trying hard, you can't expect then to succeed and not to suffer pain or or sorrow or adversity, and and part of patrice saying that it will happen as god intended is accepting um accepting that there's a line if i could just actually read it from the book um where um and this is in a a, a later chapter um when she talks about um having been assaulted and she says it could happen then to her to a good girl like her as she used to think of herself not being unlucky no not being whorish no but the world being the way the world was could happen to anyone. But that was that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think she's kind of um, boiled that kind of attitude down in that phrase. It will happen as God intended to it's a kind of um, acceptance of the contingency of, 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 of fate or the contingency of the world around her. And in that sense, I think it shows kind of a great kind of strength. It's, it's kind of what I might call an Irish fatalism. I think this is, a, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a kind of, um, there, there is something not, not uniquely, but certainly um, I, I think when I hear that kind of attitude, I, I definitely see it in a lot of Irish writing and in a lot of Irish characters. Okay. And obviously there was quite a bit of adversity in the family and the, it, it, looking at it, like it just seemed to me there was physical, emotional, social, uh, probably financial even diversity. I'd say they just scrape by. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that adversity and how it manifests itself? Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting when I read some uh, early reviews of the book and um, and uh, reviewers often found, them, found themselves saying, oh, this awful thing happens and this awful thing happens, but then saying, oh, but it's not a depressing book. And I was really glad that um, some reviewers said that because lots of um, fairly horrific things do happen, but I would never describe it as a as a depressing book. Um, and I think it's the way in which um, 
I've tried to approach the idea of adversity. And, um, and this again goes back to, you know, some of my favorite writers. Um, I think you see it in Samuel Beckett and Flann O'Brien, and you also see it in, um, in, uh, more modern writers like Anna Burns, I think, and Kevin Barry. They almost, um, mock misery, you might even say, or they look really hard at some awful things, but they don't, um, look at it in a kind of maudlin way that, that's meant to just elicit tears and sympathy from a reader. Um, but they almost approach it with a certain kind of comedy. And I think this is a really useful uh, kind of psychological way of dealing with um, difficulty. Um, in the Beckett, in my favourite Beckett play, Endgame, one character says, there's nothing funnier than unhappiness. And that's just absolutely stuck with me when I've, when I've, um, when I've been writing. And I think if you approach difficulty with a certain level of comedy, you can approach it um, in a way that you couldn't if you were just making it out to be the worst thing in the world. Um, it's almost like to look at the sun, you put on certain, um, you put on certain uh, blinkers or wear certain shades so you can see the sun. Um, another way of thinking about it is, um, is if you're going to approach a precipice without falling into it, you need some kind of some rope to stop you from dipping in, from falling. And I think comedy is a way of approaching that precipice and maybe even leaning into it a little bit more so you can kind of get closer to it, but without ever being consumed by it and defined by it and falling into it. Yeah, and I, I think you managed that balance very well in the book because there was lots of comedy in it as well. And I, I certainly would have, while it, some of it was dark, but I think the comedy lightened it. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's... Um... I think that's really important. It's not to shy away from those things, but it's about a way of approaching them um, with understanding that it isn't just your pain. Actually, we live in a, you know, we live in a world where, you know, um, suffering is, is, is endemic. Um, I don't know if you ever remember, um, you, you watch, I often watch the news and I see people, if let's say, I don't know, something horrible has happened on their street, like there's been a murder or someone set someone's house on fire. And they say something like, you don't ever think it will happen around here or, or something of this. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yes, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, and that it's it's interesting that you should say that because they're so shocked that it has actually happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I and I kind of think no, these things happen. If you think you're going to be exempt from you know that that difficulty, then you've been living in some kind of some kind of fantasy. Um, and you know those things will happen to you, and they're meant to. <laughs> not because not because the world's a particularly you know after you. But I think that's just our, our fundamental situation. Yeah, that's very true. There's no doubt. And the other thing that I found really interesting was that Patrice found it necessary to verbalise a fa family secret mm. before she died. Why do you think that was or um, it's. I think it's because she wants to be recognised. Uh, she's a woman that's um, struggled and sacrificed things for her family over many decades, and um, and she's largely been ignored and been, um, you know, kind of like um, taken for granted in the family. And so I think that act of sharing that family secret right before she dies is a way of you know stirring the pot up a bit, saying to her grandson and to her daughter, you know. I exist. I've got, I'm interesting, you know, and I know things. I'm not just some old woman sat in a corner. I think that, I think that's what, what it's about. Um, finally being recognized a last hurrah in a way. Oh, very good. Um, I'm interested in 
James Radley. Mm. Um, obviously, he was the father of Sharon's uh, son. Okay. Yeah. Uh, was there a reason you called him Radley? Um, the surname Radley. Um. There's I, 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 there's something I know, vaguely roguish about the about the name. I don't know exactly kind of um uh, uh, exactly um why. Um. So uh no, is there something that you that you associate with Radley? No, no, no. It's just that you know I live on a farm now, yeah. and um, they always put a rattle on yos to show how how many um, sheep they are yos they impregnated. So oh, I thought see. there was something sinister about that. <laughs> now may, maybe that's you know what you know what Sheila. From now on, whenever whenever I be inter- whenever I'm interviewed, I, I will say that that's the reason. <laughs> Yeah, so I just thought I said that's a very interesting name. I had never heard the name before, right? Uh, and right, then yeah. I'm saying, gosh, is there some significance in this? Okay, so the other um, character we'll call him character in the book mm. is Tonder, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. And uh, Nanda's mm. dog, or mm. indeed the dog he brought home, yeah. and she's a she, I, mm. I yeah. believe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, she seems really discerning, and uh, she obviously could have if she could speak she certainly would have let the family know a particular secret or something else that was going on that was sinister so would you like to tell me a little bit about Tonder and her significance in the family yeah thanks um that's a really good question uh the the thunder chapter is really i think one of the more popular one of the really popular ones and readers have got back to me i'm saying they really enjoyed it um in throughout the book i try to um some chapters focus on individual characters or on the relationship between two characters but some chapters try and see the family as a whole unit or a tribe and by um but by kind of taking a chapter from the perspective of the family dog, you get to see the whole family in action um, uh, in a way that you don't always in other chapters. So um, so it has that advantage, but also it has the advantage of um, uh, thinking about the different ways in which you can understand um, their reality. So because Thunder is a dog, she's got, you know, effectively amazing smell and the things that she smells around the household tell you about the, the family in a way that they themselves wouldn't even recognize. And indeed, as you allude, Sheila, um, she knows something about the state of um, the state of Nandad, which she can't quite express, but she but she knows um, in her gut, in her you know, um, she knows that something's wrong with him. Um, but uh, but but she can't really do anything about it, and she's helpless to save her master. Yeah, brilliant. And then the other thing that strikes me is there was so much death as in you you lay it out firmly in the first chapter and then you go on to tell us how all of these things happened you know it's almost like this is as you said yourself this is one end but there are several ends to Mm. come right yeah and how do you think the family coped with the grief the grief of all of this i think um i think they swallow it they consume it. They don't talk about it. It sits like an undigested, um, you know, piece of beef in the, you know, in the family stomach, I guess. Um, and I think the last chapter is, I think, really about that. The last chapter is really different in tone and focuses on Greg, who's the last um, remaining Nakulian, um, and he's on his own and he's eating a meal. And um, and that chapter is, is I, I guess, uh, a way of trying to represent the that intergenerational um, 
trauma trauma perhaps is is a word i might use but inheritance that you know and i think what can happen with people and families is that they 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 take the they take the things that happen they swallow them they consume them they're a part of them but they never necessarily talk about them and and in a sense digest and process them properly okay and is there any character in particular that you felt that dealt with grief in a more appropriate way um i think uh i think shannon does uh shannon the daughter she does eventually um uh deal with her her difficulties with james radley um in a very late chapter and she comes to realize her um how much she uh loves her son um not and and uh, maybe doesn't love him for being particularly smart or particularly um, a wise or particularly nice even, but she loves him because um, he represents for her um, a, um, a way of uh, of getting away from um, that terrible, making something of of that terrible past that she had um, with uh, James Radley being uh, being the kind of father of her child, and so she she cleaves to her son and um, uses him in a sense as an um, as as a way of understanding her grief um at the very end she uh of a chapter she runs up to him and is in tears and says you know um you're an Akulian, do you know what that means and um and he and he says yeah mama i know what that means um but then the narrator says no he didn't know what that meant but there's a sense there that that shannon does finally know what it means but her son's got a ways to go yet before he understands okay so Craig, you spoke about your mom at the beginning of the podcast mm, yeah. and you said that your mom's or your mother's diagnosis with cancer mm-hmm. inspired you to write the book. So how did exploring grief through the Nakulians help you to deal with your own grief? I think, um, as I mentioned before, when my mother was diagnosed, um, I was writing the book and uh, and I really was asking a question about um, family and what family is. And um, my mother died um, before I'd finished the book, but she knew it was being um, she knew it was being written. And I, I think um, it helped me. It didn't so much as help me to deal with that uh particular grief because I'm um, in lots of ways as I'm sure anyone that suffered a kind of grief will understand that um, there's something very particular to every loss that you have um, but I think in a broader sense um, it allowed me to come to terms with the loss of my mother in giving me a kind of canvas upon which I could think about um, what it is to be a member of a family and um, and I, I suppose to come to understand um those inheritances which we get i suppose um positive and negative from um the people that have helped to bring us up that have been around us and so in that sense it um it wasn't always helpful as in healing but it was helpful in giving me perspective um on it and um also in terms of my mother i think there was a sense in which one of the characters which is i suppose partly and only partly based on my mother um uh shannon um uh she is in some way a a sense a reflection of what i see as the the struggles that my mother um went through in bringing up um me and um my other siblings uh my mother um uh my mother divorced my father at a fairly early age and she struggled um as a single parent on an estate and with very little money um and she did things like um 
Um, she skipped meals to kind of uh, feed me. Uh, she um, she defended me to against um, the attacks of teachers when I was nearly expelled on several occasions. Um, and I think um, in some ways, some of the female characters and their strength and their um, in the face of that kind of adversity is to some extent, um, a kind of reflection of what I think my mother must have gone through in raising um, uh, a family in very difficult circumstances. Yeah, that's brilliant. And interestingly enough, I lost my own mother in nineteen in nineteen or two thousand and nineteen uh, as well, which was just last year. And the interesting thing is, I always remember the sentence that one of my siblings used at her. Uh, mass, uh, mm-hmm. she said she was the backbone of our family, yeah. a guiding light and a helping hand. Yeah. And, you know, in many ways, I can see that in your mom as well. Mm. She seemed to be really the backbone in the family and almost the glue that held you all together. Yes, I think that's absolutely, um, absolutely the case. And I think the funny thing about kind of that sort of backbone metaphor is that like, um, I think, Sometimes uh, many women in families, um, the backbone is unseen. It's not the face or the hands. It's this unseen thing which structures everything else. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily get the um, recognition uh, that it deserves. And sometimes it's a bit invisible. Yeah, fabulous. So we're coming to the end now, uh, Craig, and I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal wisdom. Hmm. Well, I suppose... um, uh, uh, from the book, you mean, you know, a sort of what I've kind yes. of learned. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, the, one of my, um, uh, a Czech novelist that I really admire is Milan Kundera. And, um, he wrote a book, um, some time ago called The Art of Fiction. And I, I read it really rather avidly. And he says in that book that there's a difference between a book which tries to explore something and a book which just tries to give a definitive account of something. So simply saying that this is bad or this is good or this is foolish or this is wise. And um, I really took that to heart. And what I, what I hope I've, uh, I've um, explored in the Nakulians is, is the idea that we have to spend, um, I suppose, even a lifelong journey trying to understand the influences that have made us us um, uh, and those influences that have um, affected people um, from previous generations um, and then affected the way that they bring up their family and then how you know, maybe your mother or your father brings you up um, and I think it's about the need to come to terms um, in both that positive and negative way with our backgrounds and what's made us um, the people that we are and I think understanding this is isn't a static thing that once you kind of have an understanding you're done it's actually a lifetime's work and i think um the process of living is a process of um consistent exploration of the self rather than ever really providing a definitive account of yourself but always maybe struggling and um striving to understand yourself a little better yeah that's fabulous it's almost like every day is a learning day yeah absolutely if you're open to learning, of course, yeah, and that's brilliant and brilliant wisdom. And I, I certainly got that sense in the book, you know, and it, it allowed me to do some self-exploration mm. as well, which is always good. And that, you know, Sheila, I think that's one of the key things about, I think, maybe reading, um, reading fiction and part of the kind of um, the philosophical import of fiction, I think, is that it can get um, maybe non-philosophers to do philosophizing um, and it gets us to 
kind of work out in um in a certain kind of psychological gym you know we go to the gym maybe to build our muscles here or, or build our fitness but i think the novel is a kind of um psychological gym where we learn about ourselves we learn about empathy um and we learn about how the world might tick along and um so i'm, I'm really you know i'm really glad you said that thanks and thank you so much for coming on the hut near the bog and we look forward to having you on at some time in the very near future again Craig, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hi, folks. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out www.epokpress.com forward slash titles hyphen the hyphen Nulicans, where you can purchase Craig's debut novel, The Nulicans. Also, myself and Sheila would just love to thank every one of you for listening to season one of The Hut Near the Bog. We've already got some big ideas for next season and we really can't wait to bring it to you. So, until then, look after yourself and thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.